The scripture reading for this morning is Philippians 3, 4 through 11. Um, if you have the, pew bi- the chair Bible in front of you, it'll be found on page 981. So again, Philippians 3, 4 through 11. Though I, have, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Thank you, Jason. Let's pray. Father, we've just sung a song about feeding on your holy word. We ask that it would be your word that we would feed on, your truths. Please, Lord God, may I decrease and you increase. May your word penetrate our hearts. May we leave here changed. For the sake of your great name, we pray. Amen. If I was to say the word deadhead to you, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? Now, if you're on my age, it might be a band. But let's put that in another context. What if I... Along with deadhead, I said, a Jake, or a Tonu, or LTL. Those are things, words or phrases that are used in the trucking business. I know a couple of you knew them right away. So let's try something different. What if you were near the meat department in your local grocery store, and you heard someone in the meat department say Pismo, or Barrel, or Steel, or Gooseneck? or bicycle chains. Those are words and phrases that, unless you're in the meat department, you wouldn't know. Every business language, or every business has a language all its own, its own culture. Um, and unless you're in that business, in that club, you don't know some of those words. They don't make sense to you. And the church has a language of its own as well. We use words... Sometimes we're not sure what they mean. Sanctification, incarnation, evangelical, Christology, soteriology, epistemology, ecclesiastical, exegesis, eisegesis, and I could go on and on, but why bother? That's just a few of them. But there's one word that we use so often we never really explain it. We assume everybody knows. 
And that word is the gospel, the word gospel. Now, in its simplest form, the word gospel means good news. But it's more than that. It's, it's a broad new good news. It's good news for everyone. It's not the same as good news, the barbecue stain came out of the shirt, which is an illustration, didn't really happen. That's the story, and I'm sticking to it. It's not good news. We've got enough gasoline for the snowblower for Friday morning in the middle of March. Um, that's really a misuse of the word gospel. Gospel actually is good news for everyone. It's a, a broad good news. Not every time something good happens would you use that term. For instance, in, the, in, in ancient times, cities were surrounded by walls and there was a watchman, either in a watchtower or on the wall. They may be at a, there may be a war going on, there seem to often be those, and where we get the term marathon from, a runner would run back and forth, giving them news of what was going on. Oftentimes, the watchman could tell by the way the guy was running whether he was bringing good news or bad news. If he came and said, batten down the hatches, we are losing the war, they're get ready, they're going to invade the city, that would not be good news. But if he came and said, we've won the war, it's over, our loved ones are coming back, then the watchman and the runner would turn to the city and proclaim the gospel. This isn't good news for a small family or a small couple, this is good news for the city. Be good news. Ukraine would love to hear that good news that the war is over, wouldn't they? Good news, though, is often sweeter when there's the possibility or the threat of bad news. What well, does it make sense? Well, let me give you an example. I know we've got a couple dog lovers in the crowd. Uh, imagine you let your dog out to do his business and he sees a rabbit gone. You haven't seen your dog for hours. You're, you're walking up and down, you're, you're yelling, you're screaming, the neighbors hear you, they're shouting, calling the dog's name. It's now dusk. It's really getting dark. You hear the coyotes howling. Now you're really worried. All of a sudden the phone rings. Hey, is this so-and-so? Is your dog lucky? I've got, the, I got your number off his tag. He's fine. I gave him some water and treats. I'll bring him over. When that dog sees you and comes running up into your arms, you are happier than if the dog had been at your feet the whole time, right? So good news often is better if there's a possibility of bad news. So I'm going to start by giving you some very bad news. God is more holy than you can comprehend. God is more holy than you can comprehend. Holy, that's another one of those church words we don't use very often. Oftentimes, if we are using it, it's making fun of somebody. Oh, that's the holy people. They're no fun. Don't invite them. They think they're holier than thou. Well, that's a misunderstanding of the word, and in a sense, it really mocks the true holiness of God. Because holiness really means to be separate, to be set apart, and in the context of God, it also means to be completely and totally other. How, how do you explain something that's other? Certainly God, the sovereign Lord of all there is, what do we compare him to? There, there's nothing. Oh, God's like, like what? 
Isaiah even tells us that. Isaiah chapter 40. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who brings out their host by number and calls them by name? What do you compare him to? You can't compare God to anything. He is holy. He is other. There's nothing to compare him to. Proverbs 99, verses 1 through 5. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. Let the, the Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Psalm 78. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power. Yes, my dear friends, God is holy. But did you hear that last verse? More than that. They tested God again and again and provoked him. God is not only holy, he is a jealous God. Here's a passage most of you are probably familiar with. Exodus 20, the very beginning of the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, you shall not serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Deuteronomy chapter 4 goes even further. The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God is not like man. For God to be jealous is not a bad thing. It is not egotistical. We do that all the time. We have things like that. We have certain positions that they are owed in certain honor. When a general walks into the room, if everybody's standing around, he says, hey, how about a salute? How about a little, is it wrong? No, he's the general. He deserves that type of respect. If he deserves that, doesn't the creator of all, the creator of you, have a right to be jealous for your affection? And be, doesn't he have a right to demand that he be treated and respected as he deserves? He is a consuming fire. God tells us that, and the people of Israel, they knew that. Further on in chapter 20 of, of Exodus, we see, now God originally, we know all the stories where God spoke to Moses, but he originally he was going to speak to the nation of Israel. He was going to come down on the mountain and speak to all of them, and that didn't work so well because they found out that God was a consuming fire, and they were terrified. Listen to what happens when God shows up to the people of Israel. Exodus 20, starting at verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and they said to Moses, uh, Moses, you, you speak to us. We'll listen, but don't let God speak to us or we'll die. They knew he was a consuming fire. 
Here's a passage read often. In fact, I think Pastor Darrell read it last week. Isaiah 6, 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And I have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He was undone. He was confronted with a holy and a jealous God. And that is not good news for you or for I. Because you are more sinful than you think. You are more sinful than you think. You are a sinner in God's eyes. Now in 2023, that's an archaic word, and it doesn't mean much to us. But it's a biblical word. And God doesn't follow modern trends, and God doesn't judge on the bell curve. And I apologize and I'm sorry if this is the first time you're hearing this, but you are not a good person. The Bible is clear. Every one of us, you and me, and I will argue me even more than you, I am a sinner. More than that, the Bible states that we are dead in our sin and we are under God's wrath, under his judgment. If you are someone who is not repented, listen to Romans 3, starting at verse 10. This is how God sees people who do not follow him. Does this describe you? You don't think it does. But in God's eyes, this describes the unrepentant person. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law speak, we know that whenever the law speaks, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That is the description of a sinner in God's eyes. We don't like to see ourselves that way, but that's the truth. Did you hear near the end there? The whole world will be held accountable to God. That includes me. That includes you. You will be held accountable before God, but not a God of your own making. You will be held accountable before a holy, jealous God. Are you prepared for that? We all know we've all sinned, but 
it's not that big a deal. I mean, everybody does it, right? We don't. When do we ever take the word sin seriously? The only time is when someone says, you're a sinner. <gasps> How could you say that? How could you judge me? But we don't think of ourselves as sinners, and we, we think of it as offensive to say that. Come on, man. I'm not that bad. I'm, I'm not that bad. How bad do you need to be? You're not that bad compared to what? Compared to whom? We look at Adam and Eve in the garden, and if we're honest, we think God overreacted. Okay, so they took a piece of fruit from a tree they weren't supposed to. At worst, they stole a piece of fruit, right? John, even John Piper said, if all Adam and Eve did was steal a piece of fruit, we have every reason to accuse God of overreacting in a cosmic way. But the fact is, that's not all they did. It wasn't that they just stole a piece of fruit. Adam and Eve, you and I in Adam, and every day in our own lives, we declare our full and complete independence. In the garden and every time we sin, we tell God, you don't have control over me. You can place no demands on me. Who are you to tell me what I can do? You're not the boss of me. And that's true. Yahweh is not your boss. He's your creator. And as such, he has every right to put demands on you and demand how his creation should respond. Any bakers out there? Anybody make cookies ever? Anybody ever make pies? You're rolling out the pie dough and it sticks a little bit? Throw a little more flour? Oh, it's too, oh, it's tearing here. What do you do? Well, the first thing you do is ask the dough, is it okay if I scrape you? No, you don't do that. You grab the scraper, you mound it all up again, a little extra flour, and you roll it out. The pie crust doesn't have a right to say how it will be. And if, it, and if it's still too wet, or, and it, now it's got too much flour, you throw it away and you start over. You don't ask the pie crust its opinion. You're the creator of the pie crust. You're the creator of the cookie dough. But for some proud, arrogant reason, we think we have the right to tell our creator what we want and that he should grovel to our whims. You see, you're more sinful than you think. So you can stop saying, I'm not that bad. Because you are. And that's something that you must confess and that you must repent. But not just that. It's not just that you're more sinful than you are. You're not as good as you claim to be either. You are not as good as you claim to be. Isaiah 64 says, We all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Not only are you much worse than you thought you were, now even your good stuff is evil. All your righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. The NIV and the King James use the term filthy rags. You know, that nasty, smelly, musty rag. You, pick, you didn't know it was nasty. You just picked it up. What's that smell? You drop it. That must is on your hands. Like, oh, now you want to pick it up and, and you throw it away. You don't put it in the wash machine. You're worried it'll ruin the rest of the stuff. 
And that, that must. Why is it when you go in the garden and you pick some herbs or some mint or you grab a flower and it, and it smells, but three minutes later that smell isn't on your hands. But onions or garlic or a musty rag, it seems that stays on your hands forever. It doesn't go away. And that's the best thing you have to offer God. That's your good stuff, is a filthy, musty, stinky, polluted rag. Romans chapter 8, verse 5 says, and following, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set your mind on the flesh is death, But to set your mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. Hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If you are not living according to the spirit, not living according to the spirit of God, then you are living according to the flesh and you are living hostile or God. Things that matter here and now for a fleeting moment, that's what you're living for. And when it says flesh, yes, it does mean eating and drinking and other things, but it's so much more than that. It doesn't just mean physical flesh. It means our arrogance, our pride, our own jealousy. If what you live for, if your desires are all on you and not on Christ, then clearly you're not as good as you claim and you're revealing your own selfishness. Here's a familiar passage. It seems most of these passages are familiar, right? Remember the time when someone came up to Jesus and said, this is Matthew 22, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Did you catch that? The guy asked, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus gives two back to back. This is the greatest and first commandment. But wait, the second one is just like it. You can't just follow one. And Vodibachum states that here Jesus boiled the Ten Commandments down to two. You want to know the greatest commandment? One through four. All four of them. Love God. Follow God. Obey God. You want to know another commandment that's just like it? Love people, 6 through 10. Don't steal, don't covet, don't murder. All of it is wrapped up in those two things. But I'm pretty good, right? I always try to do my best. Every chance I get, I'm always trying to do my best. You and I both know that's not true. Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Do you love others the way you love yourself? Well, what does that exactly mean? How do I love myself? Got a new shirt. I gave an old one to Goodwill. No, 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 no. If I deserve a new shirt and I love myself, then I should give a new shirt to Goodwill, right? When I want to go out for steak, where's Delafield? I'm turned around. When I want to go for a steak at Kurt's Steakhouse, and the rolls are almost as good as the steak, I... Do I dig through my cabinet and find the can of it's so faded I'm not sure what it is or why I bought it and give that to the food pantry? Or do I give a gift card to Kurt's Steakhouse? Because I love them the way I love myself, right? 
I don't do that. I'm here telling you, I don't do that. I love myself far more than I love others. And that's because I'm more sinful than I think, and I'm not as good as I claim to be. But there is good news. God is more gracious and loving than you can imagine. God is more gracious and loving than anyone can imagine. I think I've made the case you should never say I'm not that bad, and you should never say I'm pretty good. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we all know that we are nothing more than sin factories. We were born in sin, we were born with the sin of Adam, and we just keep going down that road, which puts us in a terrible position because God is holy and God is jealous. And sin and holiness do not mix. So what are we going to do? Well, Yahweh, the Lord, is not just holy. He is also gracious and loving. But we think, because God doesn't punish us for our sin right away, he doesn't really care. It doesn't really matter to him. It's not that offensive to him. I read the Bible and I see so-and-so sinned and the ground opened up and swallowed him. I read the Bible and they sinned and they dropped dead at Peter's feet. I don't see that happening. So maybe God, maybe what I'm doing really isn't sin or maybe God really doesn't care. It's not, it's not really that offensive. Let me draw you to a verse that I think, I've mentioned a lot of verses and a lot of them familiar to you. Here's one that I hope is familiar to you. I think this is one that we really need to dwell on more. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Don't abuse Don't take the kindness of God for granted. But that's what we do. The reason God hasn't struck you dead right now is because he's being kind to you. He's giving you a chance to repent. He's giving you a chance to call out for mercy. It's just natural we assume God doesn't care that much. We just assume God forgives. He's a loving God, right? We never hear about his holiness. We never hear about his justice. The men's breakfast, we're going through a book by J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer quotes a French free thinker. He doesn't give us his name. I looked, I tried to find out who he was. He just says a French free thinker on his deathbed said, and for those of you that know French, I apologize for this, Dieu pardonner si est son meilleur, which means God will forgive. It's his job. I don't know if you're familiar with the term free thinker, but it's just a euphemism for an agnostic or an atheist. Here is a man who does not believe in God, but if he exists, it's God's job to forgive me. That, my friends, is the ultimate in the presumption of God's grace and God's kindness. Romans 2.4 says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness? His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Does God owe us forgiveness? Romans 6 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. We are owed death, but God offers his free gift to everyone who confesses and repents. 2 Corinthians 7, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret 
whereas worldly grief produces death. Repentance leads to salvation. God is more gracious and loving than you can imagine. And there is hope for all of us, for all of the sinners, but not without confession and repentance. I didn't even bother counting how many times Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is is at hand. John the Baptist before him said, repent for the kingdom of God is is at hand. Repent. That's another one of those church words. We're not really sure what it means. We don't really like it. But Paul tells us what it means in 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly grief produces repentance. Godly grief produces repentance. We all know what grief is. We've all been grieved. It's sorrow. So godly grief is sorrow over your sin, sorrow over your rebellion against God. And that grief should lead to action. Don't tell me you're sorry about something if you have no intention of stopping and no intention of changing your ways. Repentance is a call to action, a call to live differently. Romans 10 If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Confess. Confess means to admit. Come on. We've all seen at least one cop show, right? And I don't mean the show Cops. You've seen Law and Order, you've seen a CSI, you've seen a Mannix, a Barnaby Jones, Petricelli, I'm really dating my, Perry Mason. We all know what confess means. Perry Mason always had him confess on the stand. They don't always do that. But confess means to admit that you were wrong. So in this context, it means to admit that you did not give God what he was due. You did not obey him like you knew you should. That's right, you know when you're disobeying God. Not quite like the, I, no, I always do my best. I always do my best. What about the couple times when you've said, you know, I've been really good today. I deserve to be a little bit naughty tonight. <gasps> well, then, wait a minute, you always do your best. There's never a time when you go, ah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fluff off tonight. I'm going to blow off. No, no, you always do your best, right? I know I do that. I'm sure some of you, if not all of you, do that too. The truth is, every single one of us, Christian or not, knows we're not perfect and we know we're sinners. What makes the Christian different is the Christian doesn't just repent of the wrongs that they have done. They also repent of the good stuff. That sounds weird. What did Jason read? Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. That means strict. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul is telling us he kept the law of God perfectly. Or at least he thought he did. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. 
For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them all rubbish. Paul is saying, all this good stuff I had, all this obeying I did, God, count it garbage. Count it trash. I don't, I don't want to come with my good and Jesus. No, I repent of all that. I want to come with empty hands to God. He wants an, a righteousness that comes from faith that produces salvation, a righteousness with the power of the resurrection. That's why we have sola gratia there, solely grace, grace alone. That's why Paul said, by grace you have been saved in Ephesians. I started talking about different words. The church often reacts to the culture trying to respond with different words. Many, many, many years ago, there were people that said, well, Sure, I'm, I'm a Christian. My parents go to church. My grandparents go to church. I go to church C and E, Christmas and, and Easter. And so the church said, no, we got to find a way to tell people just because your parents are Christians, you're not a Christian. So we told people, you need to have a personal relationship. And that's true. You have to have a relationship. But quickly the world took that and turned that around. And they changed that P word from personal to private. It's a private relationship. Oh, I don't share it with anybody. I don't talk about it. Well, that's not what we meant when we told people you need to have a relationship. Then there's people out there trying to be good enough, trying to earn it, trying to bring their good along with it. And we, the church, again, how do we combat this? How do we tell people this? So we told them God's love is unconditional. You can't earn it. Stop trying to be good enough. And the world took that, ran and twisted it again. Oh, it's unconditional. Yes, it's unconditional. Now, if you're going to follow Jesus, you need to repent. No, 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 no. You told me it's unconditional. Don't put a condition on it and say, I need to repent. Don't say, I need to follow and obey. And obey. You said it's unconditional. Well, the, we never meant that. That's not what the Bible says. It says you can't earn it. That's an abuse of what was trying to be conveyed. If you're going to make Jesus your savior, there can't be any conditions on it. You can't put conditions. If he's going to be your savior, he also needs to be your Lord. A few years ago, there was a thing about lordship salvation. Oh, we can't do that. That's a works righteousness. No, Jesus is Lord. If you want a Jesus of your own making, fine. But if you're going to follow the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, he is Lord. And you can't make him Savior without also making him Lord. One of the first passages that was read today was Romans 5. Back on that there is hope for sinners. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the pretty good, no, he died for the ungodly. That was me. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him and from the wrath of God. For if, well, get this, we don't like to hear this, 
For if while we were enemies, you were an enemy of God, and if you have not repented and confessed, you still are an enemy of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We were enemies. We were ungodly. But 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You can become the righteousness of God. That's real hope. That's a hope. That's a hope for the person who is more sinful than they think and not as good as they claim. Do you see the cross? What does it remind you of when you see that? Does it remind you of hope? Does it remind you that he who knew no sin became sin on your behalf? The cross is a sign of hope. But don't miss it. It's also a sign of judgment and damnation. That cross reminds us that there is a holy, jealous God. And wicked, evil sin is what sent God's son to that cross. Excuse me. (coughs) If God is calling you now, if God is convicting you of your sin right now, do something about it. Do not presume upon God's kindness anymore. What is the gospel? The gospel is this. Confess, repent, admit that God is more holy than you can comprehend. You are more sinful than you think. You're not as good as you claim to be. Trust that God is more gracious and loving than you can imagine. And in that gracious love, he sent Jesus to die in your place. And he rose from the dead. That's the gospel. If God is calling you, please respond, confess, repent. Do not live under the cloud of bad news. Put your faith in Jesus. Believe the gospel. Believe the good news. The gospel brings peace with God and a hope that does not put us to shame. Romans 5, again, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you see how gracious and loving a holy and just God is? Do not presume upon his kindness. Do not take his kindness for granted anymore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness towards us. We don't deserve it. We were enemies. We were ungodly. We were wicked. Yet while we were in that state, you sent your son to change us, to mold us, to conform us to the image of your son. He died so we wouldn't have to. He became sin so that we could become righteous. It's beyond comprehension. We thank you for the cross that it is hope.
and we tremble because the cross also reminds us about judgment. Father, enable us to live holy lives honoring to you. In Christ's name we pray.